for many who watched her reporting on Al Jazeera for more than 20 years, Shirin Abu Akleh was more like a Palestinian icon. She was great at her job, a courageous woman with a passion for her profession. شيرين أبو عقلة، الجزيرة، بلدة سيلة الحارثية، قرب حاجزي قلندية العسكرية من حي الشيخ جراحة، القدس المحتلة But the coverage of her tragic death is raising another issue. Accusations of bias in the mainstream media over how they cover the deaths of Palestinians. Hello, I'm Sami Zaydan, and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. My guest and I will chat about why mainstream media has sometimes been accused of dropping objectivity, impartiality and accuracy in covering stories related to Palestine or Palestinian lives and deaths. Hi, Sami. I'm Ali Abu Nerma. I am the executive director of the Electronic Intifada, an online publication focused on Palestine. And I'm talking to you today from Amman, Jordan. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Now, before we start, I want to share with our listeners and with you a few headlines in some of the mainstream media outlets about Shirin Abu Akleh's killing. Let me be clear, these headlines are being read by one of our own journalists. Shirin Abu Akleh, trailblazing Palestinian journalist, dies at 51. Miss Abu Akleh, a Palestinian-American reporter, killed. Shirin Abu Akleh, a journalist for the Al Jazeera network, was killed by gunfire in the occupied West Bank, the Palestinian Health Ministry says. The shooting happened during an Israeli army raid in Jenin. Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist killed in West Bank. Al Jazeera reporter killed during Israeli raid in West Bank. The problem with these headlines is that they lack some important information about Shireen's death. And that kind of gives you an idea about how these outlets inform viewers about events in the occupied territories in general. None of them, for example, mentioned the statement by Shireen's employer that she was targeted by Israeli soldiers, or what several eyewitnesses who were with Shireen had to say, or what Palestinian officials had to say about the killing. How do you feel about the mainstream media headlines over Shireen's killing then? Well, I wish I could say I was surprised, but it's followed the patterns we've seen for years where Israel has always given the benefit of the doubt. The coverage is done in a way that gives viewers or listeners the suggestion that maybe the victim somehow brought the catastrophe on themselves. And it generally privileges whatever talking points or propaganda narrative that uh, Israel is pushing out. It's, it's always a question of, you know, both sidesing it, so to speak. You know, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. Give us some examples of what makes you feel that way. Really, it was just the consistent use of, for example, I saw several headlines which talked about Shirin Abu Akleh being killed during clashes. And clashes is one of these words that is consistently used, specifically in the context of Palestine, to somehow suggest equality. What was actually happening on that horrible morning in Jenin was that heavily armed Israeli occupation forces 
we're invading a refugee camp. So when you say a word like clashes, it somehow obscures the context that these were uh, troops invading a place and that any violence that followed follows from that initial violent act of invasion. The other thing is a term like clashes ignores what was actually known almost immediately. We saw the eyewitness accounts from the journalists who were right next to Shirin Abu Akhleh saying there was no clashes, there was no exchange of fire, that things were absolutely quiet in the place where they were, and then all of a sudden out of the blue, Israeli forces started firing on them. That account from several eyewitnesses was clear from the start. Well, these media organizations might argue and say, well, we haven't seen all the evidence ourselves and the investigations haven't been completed. That's true, but, you know, you can see a massive qualitative difference from the way anything related to Palestine, including Shirin Abu Akhle's killing, is covered on the one hand, and say, you know, take another situation, Ukraine, on the other, where that kind of circumspection, that kind of extreme caution, that kind of unwillingness to put things in plain language is totally different. For example, there are reports or accusations of atrocities in Ukraine, and there's very little circumspection in the sense of, well, we don't know what happened, we don't know who did it, we haven't seen the evidence, there needs to be an investigation. They immediately will repeat government claims from you know Western governments that Russia did it. And they don't say, neither the governments nor the media will stress the need for this independent investigation, you know. So you can immediately see this extreme contrast between how anything Palestine-related is handled and all sorts of other situations. Where is that contrast coming from? What do you think motivates it? You know, I will tell you about my own evolution in thinking on this. I think for many years, and I, I've been doing journalism and doing media criticism now since the mid-1990s at least, I thought journalists don't know, we have to do a better job of educating them and informing them and advocating, and then they'll learn and then they'll do the coverage better. And I don't believe that at all now. I believe that many of the journalists on the ground from the mainstream media, the big Western brand name media corporations, know the reality of the situation on the ground. They understand the massive disproportionate power imbalance between Israel on the one hand and Palestinians on the other. But they are constrained by a Western corporate media system that effectively functions as state media. There's no doubt that these large news agencies do set the tone and are very influential, but they don't make the law. Any journalist should and can explore the reality themselves and come up with better, more descriptive language. There's nothing to stop them doing that. It's a big claim to say they function effectively as state media. So, for example, you'll see the big Western media, and that includes both private and public media. So whether I'm talking about CNN and the New York Times, which are private, or the BBC and CBC and other so-called public broadcasters, on the other hand, their narrative on Russia, 
for example, and Ukraine reflects entirely the Western governments. There's no daylight between the line they'll put out on Ukraine and Russia and what their own governments are saying. So basically, when Western governments are criticizing or attacking Russia, their media does that. When Western governments are criticizing or attacking China, their media does that too. When Western governments are willing to criticize Saudi Arabia, then Western media will criticize Saudi Arabia too. The big taboo remains Israel because Western governments remain fully behind Israel. So what that means is that even though the individual journalists, producers, and editors know very well what's happening, they know that it's more than their job's worth, it's more than their career and their livelihood is worth to go against that and that they will catch hell if they go too far in allowing criticism of Israel. I'm far more free to talk about Palestine in the media that is portrayed in the West as being somehow state-controlled and somehow very authoritarian, whereas the only place I'm not allowed to speak freely about Palestine and what's happening is in the Western media that markets itself as this paragon of freedom and free expression. You know, it's interesting coming back to what you mentioned about the coverage of Shirin Abakla's death, because if you look at statements put out by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International, by a number of credible organizations who have done some looking into this with the evidence that is available so far, and they've come out with statements, yet that still doesn't seem to have made a huge difference to the media narrative, right? That's not being taken into account. That's exactly right. And I think this is true, that the situation in Palestine is the best documented conflict in the world. I mean, there are shelf loads of human rights reports, UN independent investigations, you name it, eyewitness accounts, video. There's no doubt about what's happening in Palestine. And yet this seems to make no dent in the overall tenor of the narrative. And that's why I've come to the conclusion that it's not that they don't know, they do know, but there's other bigger political and economic forces at work as well in terms of individual journalists. I mean, they're human beings, I get that. They don't want to be fired. They don't want their careers destroyed. But also from the Israeli perspective, we have to understand that they have a fairly sophisticated understanding of how the news cycle works in the sense that even if Israel knows that ultimately whatever narrative it's putting out is going to fall apart. It takes time for it to fall apart. It might take a day, it might take three days, it might take a week until the human rights organizations go in and they document everything. And this time it happened fairly quickly. It was within a day or so that B'Tselem had done that careful field research to show that the Israeli narrative that a Palestinian gunman that had appeared in a video that the Israeli prime minister and the Israeli army had shared, it would have been impossible for that person to have been the person who shot Shirin. But by that time, the Israeli goal had been achieved, which was to get the headlines in the mainstream media saying, well, the circumstances are disputed. Well, the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh is not the only issue related to Palestine that the narrative gets obscured. Let's talk about some other examples. And I want to play a clip now from last year hosted by an American broadcaster, 
interviewing a well-known Palestinian youth, you may know him, he's called Mohammed al-Kurd. Let's listen in. Well, Mohammed al-Kurd joins me now from Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. You grew up uh, in, in the neighborhood. Your family home is slated for eviction. What is the scene right now? Well, I thank you so much for having me. To start, it's not really an eviction. It's forced ethnic displacement, to be accurate, because an eviction implies legal authority. While the Israeli occupation has no legitimate jurisdiction over the eastern parts of occupied Jerusalem under international law, it also implies the presence of a landlord. And certainly these Israeli settlers have not built our homes. They're not our landlords. They don't own our land. And thirdly, eviction does not imply the hundreds and hundreds of heavily armed police and army and settlers polluting blowing up your doors, throwing your children from your windows, and using brute force to throw you out in the street and assaulting and arrest you should you resist. That's not the only example. Let's listen to this one too. Do you support the violent protests that have erupted in solidarity with you and, and other families in your position right now? Do you support the violent dispossession of me and my family? I'm just asking if you support the protests that are taking place in support of your family. I support popular protests taking place against ethnic cleansing, yes. All right, Ali, what do you make of these examples? I think those are really great examples of how language is used to limit people's understanding of the reality and the context. And I always avoid the term eviction, for example, because what it does is it reduces the context from ethnic cleansing and colonization to as if it's an individual property dispute and it creates the false impression that Israel somehow has the legal authority to adjudicate such a dispute, that Israel is the legitimate sovereign and landlord that can decide whether this tenant is the person who's allowed to live in this house. And it totally removes the reality that Israel's occupation and annexation of East Jerusalem are completely illegal, and Israel has no authority to do that. Again, Ali, do you think this is lost on some of the journalists, that they may not be familiar with the fact that there are countless UN resolutions, rulings by international legal institutions that have said very clearly Israel, as the occupying power, does not have the legal authority to make a transfer of population, to impose Israeli laws on occupied territories and so on, etc., etc.? I don't think it's lost on them. I think what they're doing is they're in a process of internal negotiation, let's say, about what is, what, let's find a term that we can use that reduces the situation as much as possible, that obscures the power relationship as much as possible. So they'll say, well, that's why they like a word like eviction, because it still allows us to describe the situation, but it is a very kind of, you know, low heat word, let's say. The same with clashes. Clashes is great because it absolves the journalist. Well, there are some well-respected mainstream anchors and reporters who are doing a good job to try and keep the narrative accurate and straight, right? Of course. And, you know, even in the context of Shirin Abu Akleh's killing, there are mainstream journalists or journalists from mainstream networks I've seen from NBC, for example, which is a big American network, and others from the BBC who were there on the ground as Israel was, you know, brutally attacking the pallbearers carrying Shirin Abu Akhle's casket, they were being very professional, reporting exactly what they saw. The question is, what filters up from those journalists through the editorial process 
to what ultimately appears on air or on the front page of the New York Times, for example. Not everybody is looking at this on Twitter. But what I stress here again is it's not a problem of individuals. There are some very good, very well-informed, very serious individuals, but they're working within a system that is really designed to constrain and to limit the flow of information. All right, time to play some more clips. Here's an exchange between the Palestinian ambassador to the UK with a British broadcaster during the war in Gaza last year. I'm sorry, Adam. The international media, including British media, always try to paint the picture as if it's an issue between Hamas and Israel. No, it's an issue between Palestinian people and Israel. Israel is saying it's retaliating and that if those missile exchanges, rocket exchanges, stop, that it would stop the bombing. But do you think uh, stopping the exchanges would stop the ugly reality that started this whole thing? Well, it would stop people being dying uh, and being blown up. uh, No, Palestinians are dying every day, with exchanges or not. Ali, I don't think it's any secret that quite often occupation and the term occupation is taken out of the context and reporting. Occupation and also resistance and the legitimacy of resistance. Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February. Immediately, you saw the Western media universally celebrating the idea of Ukrainian resistance, including all of these very positive stories about Ukrainian civilian, you know, the Ukrainian authorities handing out guns to Ukrainian civilians in Kiev. There were very positive stories about Ukrainians getting together and preparing Molotov cocktails, for example. Right, and I remember seeing reports about Ukrainian civilians trying to make their homemade explosives. And it's, well, it's difficult to see that sort of report being made about Palestinians portrayed in the same light. Well, it's not, it's impossible and it has never happened. I mean, from my, you know, more than two decades, 25 years of looking at this, I've never seen anything like that. Take, for example, according to Defense for Children International Palestine, Israel has killed 10 Palestinian children since the start of this year, including a 16-year-old child on the same day that Shireen Abu Akleh was killed. And in almost every case, Israel will claim, whether it's true or not, that uh, this youth or child had been throwing stones or had thrown a Molotov cocktail. And what we find in those cases is that that's enough for the Western media to accept that, yes, it was perfectly legitimate for a sniper or a heavily armed soldier to shoot a child in an occupied territory from, you know, dozens of meters away because that child may or may not have thrown a rock, which would have done absolutely nothing to these heavily armed soldiers invading his village. Can it be defended in this way? Can it be said, hey, the reason for the difference is that sometimes Palestinian resistance and the resistance actions of Palestinians are more indiscriminate. Palestinian rockets can sometimes fall in Israeli cities, whereas in the case of Ukraine, they're targeting mostly the Russian army. Well, we don't know that at all. The difference in what's happening is who the aggressor is and who the victim is. That's how these things are decided. It's based on the identity, not based on the actions. So there are cases of where nobody could argue that Palestinians have a right to attack military targets or there are armed settlers attacking Palestinians. 
and Palestinians will still be called terrorists. You don't see Western media trying to make those distinctions to say, you'll never hear them say, for example, well, Palestinians have a right to resist. You know, maybe this particular action, people might dispute it, but Palestinians have a right to resist. That's just not asserted. The idea that seems to be universal is that any violence by Palestinians is an aggression in which Israel is the victim, and any and all violence by Israel is self-defense or is the action of a state legitimately taking action to protect its people. That framework is never ever challenged regardless of the specifics of this or that incident. And the point I'm making here is that no matter what Israel does, no matter how many times it does it, it never seems to fundamentally impact or change the narrative. Sometimes Israel makes mistakes, and when it makes mistakes, we have to have an investigation because, you know, Israel couldn't possibly have done this on purpose. Whereas the Palestinians are always doing their best to attack Israeli civilians with malicious intent. That narrative remains intact regardless of the facts. Ali, should the Palestinians themselves carry some of the responsibility for not being able to present an articulate narrative? No, I don't think so at all. I think that was also a perception that existed, you know, I remember in the 1990s or early 2000s during the Second Intifada, I might even have held that view that, you know, we Palestinians have to do better. I think there's also here a perception that Palestinians cannot be witnesses in their own cause. To have a Palestinian talk about what's happening to Palestinians is inherently biased. How could they be trusted? Because after all, of course, Palestinians are going to say whatever it is that is most critical or most negative towards Israel. But that's not true when it comes, again, say to Ukraine, where Western media is full of you know, Ukrainian voices and Ukrainian witnesses, and they'll say, well, if we really want to know what's going on in Ukraine, we need to talk to people in Ukraine. Have you noticed a pattern, Ali, where sometimes the Palestinian narrative is completely missing? For example, the media will say Israel carried out an air raid, and it says it's responding to the Palestinians. No mention of what the Palestinians say. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the missing context and the missing power imbalance. I mean, the basic context here is settler colonialism. Well, if you can't talk about apartheid, then you can't talk about the reality. You can't talk about the context. And so that, I think, is why, again, you know, you mentioned, uh, Sammy, how it's about, well, things always start with whatever the latest thing was. You know, it's like, well, rockets were fired yesterday and Israel is responding today. Well, what happened last week? What happened last month? What happened a year ago? What happened over the last few decades? All of that is erased. And the word responded is almost universally reserved for one side. And I think as a journalist, you've got to wonder whether you're really being accurate if you consistently do that, of course. Of course. And I think, again, that's about portraying the situation in this fundamentally inaccurate way in which Israel is the victim and Palestinians are the unruly aggressors, terrorists, attackers, bent on destruction, bent on blood, driven by hatred. And, you know, Israel is just trying to live an ordinary life without being bothered by all this violence. 
That's the fundamental narrative. And no matter how many reports from B'Tselem, from the UN Human Rights Council, from you name it, that fundamental narrative remains intact in the mainstream Western media. But that said, it is changing. There is some change taking place, though, in the international perception about the whole issue, particularly when it comes to Palestinian basic rights and human rights, right? When we take into consideration that internationally respected mainstream human rights organizations like Amnesty International, like Human Rights Watch, are starting to talk about apartheid in their reporting. Absolutely. And uh, I'll just remind you that uh, after Amnesty International, perhaps the world's best-known human rights group issued its report saying Israel commits the crime against humanity of apartheid. It took almost two months for the New York Times to mention the Amnesty International report. So there is a change happening, but probably the last place we're going to see that change reflected is in what we call the mainstream media. And you think back a year ago to the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, 11 days in which they killed 250 people, almost 70 children. And I remember looking, there was a series of opinion polls of US public opinion that were done both during and just after the Israeli attack. And it was astonishing to see the sea change in US public opinion in the sense that the kind of overwhelming support that Israel normally would have enjoyed had simply collapsed. But I think it's a result of a change in discourse that is not coming from the mainstream media. Perhaps it's coming from alternative media, from social media, from uh, the kinds of activities that we see on college campuses and so on. But it's not due to the mainstream media. Let me now ask you to bring out your crystal ball. Tell us when we think we're going to see the narrative become a lot more accurate. The conclusion I've come to, and I think I gave a lot more weight to the power of advocacy, the power of education, and those things are important, don't get me wrong. I think ultimately what is going to change the narratives is what happens on the ground. I think that what was remarkable to me last year when Palestinians were engaged in massive resistance, including when the rockets were flying towards Israeli cities. I have never seen more sort of mainstream acceptance of the idea that Palestinians are justified in resisting Israel. There was still a much broader acceptance of the idea that the Palestinians are in a just fight, that they have a right to resist more so than I've ever seen in the last 25 years. And Israel was really unable to spin the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh. Yes, they did change the initial headlines in the initial news cycle, but I think even they are saying, you know, if you read the Israeli media as I do every day, you know, this is a massive embarrassment and propaganda failure for Israel. And the same was true last year with Gaza. They failed to sort of sear into people's minds the perception that Israel is entirely justified and is just responding to terrorism. So there is a change, and it's driven in a large part by what is happening on the ground. It's been a great discussion. Thanks for joining us, Ali, and thank you for listening. We'd like to dedicate this episode to Shireen Abu Akla and her family. This episode was produced by Hayat Mongodin and Khaled Sultan, Sound design is by George Lwir. 
Our lead engagement producer is Ayal Malik and assistant engagement producer Munir Dosari. And of course, Omar Saleh is our executive producer. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>